Just like an actual toolbox, you need to have a variety of financial tools at your disposal so your retirement portfolio can handle any situation that comes your way. Scott Searles is a certified wealth strategist and the CEO of Skybox Asset Management. He can help you build a solid financial plan that will stand the test of time. This is the Retirement Toolbox Podcast. Well, hey there, and welcome to another edition of the Retirement Toolbox. I'm Walter Storholt alongside Scott Searles, financial advisor at Skybox Asset Management, serving you throughout the greater Cleveland area and in Bradenton, Florida as well, with an office in Strongsville, Ohio. You can find us online by going to skyboxasset.com. That's skyboxasset.com. Scott brings us more than 20 years of experience in the financial planning world to the equation each and every time here on the show. And Scott, great to talk with you once again this week. How are you doing? Oh. oh, I'm doing well and uh, looking forward to our program today. We've got some good stuff to dive into. We're going to talk about coronavirus financial world terms. So the terms, the financial buzzwords and things that we need to know as we kind of still navigate our way through COVID and the recovery and reopening that's happening from COVID and the markets and all that kind of stuff. So that should be an interesting conversation to get some good education on the show today. We've got a great question from one of our listeners on the program as well. And our new segment, Scott, we've got some movie and TV show reviewing to do at the end of the program today. Can't wait. (laughs) As always, it's going to be a lot of fun here on the show. So let's dive into our main topic of the day. And we're going to start that off, Scott, with this conversation about these terms that we need to figure out. You know, the coronavirus pandemic has probably led a lot of people to hear some different types of terminology, you know, U-shaped recoveries, W-shaped recoveries, things like that. It's possible you aren't familiar with some of the terms that are getting thrown around. So we're going to look at some of the popular ones and see what what we can learn from them. First thing I'm curious of, Scott, what's the proper thing to call what happened? I mean, was this was this a bear market that we entered into, a crash, a bubble, a downturn, crisis, meltdown? I mean, what are the proper terms that you use when you're talking to clients about what we've gone through? Well, I was going to say a mess, but... Uh, okay, a mess. You know, There's another one. Throw that in the pile. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the media loves throwing out all these terms, too. You're watching the news, you're reading stuff, you hear you know, bear market crash, downturn, bubbles, you know, all these different things. But I'm going to go through each one of them, kind of give everybody that's listening kind of a basis or groundwork for us to start from. And then we'll talk about, you know, how, what actually did happen and how it fits in the framework. Because, you know, you hear bear market, for instance, all the time. And bear market is usually a 20% drop. And for the sake of our conversation here, we'll use the S&P 500. So, the bear market is usually a 20% drop in the S&P 500 that lasts over several months. So, you know, usually you know, will have that drop. Sometimes they go quicker, sometimes they go slower, but it's a 20% drop in the markets. A crash is kind of like a crash. It's sudden. It happens more rapidly. And that's usually, you know, defined as a 10% drop over a couple days, one or two days, quick 10% drop. That's what technically we call a crash. Downturn is just simply the rising and falling of prices. You can have downturns during a day. You know, the market could take a downturn in the afternoon. It could be up in the morning and take a downturn in the afternoon. So that's not necessarily anything dramatic. Financial crisis, well, you know, that's kind of what we went through in 2008, where there's a systemic problem in the system, where in 2008, 
we were hours away from complete financial collapse. I mean, we had money, the credit markets froze up. There was not much trust in mortgage loans and the banks. People were pulling out money. That was more financially oriented. And I'll say for the record right now, this was not a financial crisis, what we just went through. This was an, triggered by an event. You know, we, we had the coronavirus and that was more of an event you know, our financial and our economy was doing quite well. And then a bubble is simply something that gets overpriced. There's bubbles in real estate, stock market, price of bread, whatever. But something gets overpriced and then demand or something happens and then that bubble bursts and the prices drop back down to more of a normal level or sometimes even below a normal level. So when we look at what we, if we look back at what we've gone through the last few months here with the with the coronavirus from a market standpoint. The market did drop, it crashed. We had more than that 10%. This was the fastest pull down that we have had in, in the market in history, the quickest, most rapid drop in the market. And we definitely entered bull market territory. But the key, I mean, the bear market territory, bull market's a good thing where, where it goes up. But the bear, we definitely entered bear market territory. We didn't stay down there very long. The markets came back up above that 20% mark, you know, within several weeks of having that initial drop. So we're not necessarily in a bear market now. We did have a crash. Certainly was a downturn. We're not in a financial crisis. And there wasn't necessarily a bubble. Things weren't necessarily overpriced before we went in here. So yeah, I don't know if, if any of those terms are, are going to be anything that we're going to stick with, possibly maybe a bear market if the economy doesn't turn around, if this recovery, all the stimulus packages that the government's rolled out don't kick in, then we may have that bear market that may last for several months. We could go back down and then last for several months. So that kind of explains best what happened, I think. That's interesting because you can use so many terms interchangeably, it seems, but some evoke different emotions than the other. And you're right, media tends to lean one way using terms, and then you know everyday people are kind of left wondering how to how it all shakes out. So a little bit of logical discussion is interesting to kind of uh, get some knowledge and uh, learn a little bit about what do we call these things when they happen and how far they go down, how we put that into context. And uh, it's an mm -hmm. interesting way to look at it. Kind of tied to that has been this talk of entering a recession or the next depression. I mean, that's a very scary word, obviously, as people are, you know, nobody wants to, we've all learned and heard about the Great Depression. Nobody wants to certainly go through that again. Is that a real concern of where we're headed? And what's the difference between those two things? Well, let, let's, I mean, the difference, let's look at this from a definition standpoint. So a recession is usually a decline in several, and I try not to get too nerdy on this show, but I'll kind of keep it as light as I can. But significant declines that last over uh, several quarters or maybe several months, there's a little bit of a debate on exactly the technical definition of a recession. But a drop in, in our gross domestic product, which is all of our goods and services that we produce in the country, GDP, you may hear it referred to as employment, retail sales, industrial production, how much our factories are making. So we've got a, a significant decline of those that last two quarters or a few months. Okay, now a depression is a 
very, very bad recession. It's a significant drop that lasts three or more years, technically. And it's at least a drop of 10% in, in debt GDP, usually going to have high unemployment, low inflation. So it's an extreme recession. I don't think we're going into a depression for sure. We can already start to see some of our economic numbers starting to bounce back already from you know, the extreme unemployment we had, though those numbers really haven't improved much. But you know, just the production or the output of the economy. So if anything, you know, the, the jury's are out a little bit on whether we're going to go into a recession and how long those are going to last. But if, if anything, it would be probably a slight recession. I think the government did a good job of kind of stepping in and boosting up everything rather quickly. So I think that, you know, if any cards are going to be on the table, it might be a slight recession. Interesting to hear the differences between those two as well. Now, everyone wants to think positively, Scott, and look toward recovery. And I've heard all these terms kind of thrown out there recently. U-shaped, V-shaped recoveries, a W-shaped recovery. I'm a fan of that one just because, you know, I'm a Walter, the W there, <laughs> W solidarity. L-shaped recovery, which I'd never heard of that one before. What are those and which one do you think is likely given our current situation? Or can you even really make an educated guess at that? Well, you know, at this point, it is all kind of a little bit of guessing. Educated, of course. But, you know, if you had a piece of paper and you draw the U, you draw the V, you draw the W, and dropped an L, that pretty much is going to give you a visual explanation. Don't do it while you're driving. If you're listening to this in the car, bad idea. But if you were to draw a U on a piece of paper and the markets went down and they were took a little bit of time, kind of stayed at the bottom for a bit, and then came back up. That would be a U-shaped recovery. A V would be a sharp drop, followed by a sharp increase. A W, sharp drop, increase, drop, increase. And an L would mean it would drop and then never come back up. So let's talk about you know what might be the most likely to, to happen looking at where we're at right now. And I think probably the most likely to happen is going to be a U-shaped recovery where we had our drop. We did kind of come up. You could almost make the argument for a W if you think we're going to go back down again. But really the U-shape, we dropped down. We came up a little bit. We're still off of our highs. And as the economy starts to improve and we start to see some of these numbers coming back up, then the markets will go back up you know, not quickly, but more slowly over time. So I think that U-shape is probably the most likely type of recovery we'll have out of the situation. All right. That's good too. That's better than the L-shape, right? If I'm, I'm, I'm not driving, so I did the drawing. L-shape looked bad. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does look bad. We don't want that one. So that's good. And we kind of already have bucked the L-shape, right? Because we've already had a little bit of the start of a V. So exactly. Yeah. Maybe uh, I get, ooh, we could create our own here. I've never heard anyone say the division sign recovery. But that one's possible, right? We we went up, down, back up a little bit. But then if we flatline like the L a little bit, we'd have a division sign recovery. See, let's trade. Well, you're you, you are really that. drawing some pictures. Here, <laughs> let's let's trademark that. People trying to visualize this without being able to kind of write it down are like, wait, what, what 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 kind of shapes are we drawing here? It's too funny. Uh, all right, so types of recoveries. That's big. Oh, I've seen this VIX V I X brought up a lot lately. What is VIX when you see that on uh, the CNBC screen or Fox Business or something at the bottom of the screen, or they, they flash it up big and big bright letters and breaking news, VIX is doing X, Y, and Z. What does that all mean? 
Well, VIX is a measure of volatility. And again, not to get too nerdy, but it's an index that's created by the Chicago Board of Exchange. And the Chicago Board of Exchange is, is the exchange where all the options are traded. So in other words, what an option is, is where you've got an option to buy something at a future price. So you're kind of predicting. So what they do is they look at the options of the S&P 500, and they get an idea of where people think the markets are going to go. So it's a measure of volatility, market risk, and investor sentiment. So usually when the markets are volatile and they're going to drop, that VIX number is going to shoot up that VIX index will shoot up, meaning that there's a lot of market risk out there and that people aren't necessarily very positive about the markets. Usually when the markets go up, you'll see that VIX number drop, meaning that there's, you know, people are feeling better about where everything's going to go and that the, the volatility of the markets have dropped somewhat. So it's just one of the one of those gauges that people use to kind of get an idea of predicting the future, which you know, we can't really predict the future very well, but we tried to develop these tools to kind of give us an idea of what we can expect ahead. I saw something on TV recently, Scott, that talked about tax loss harvesting, and they were saying it's a great idea. You should be doing this right now, given the current landscape. What is tax loss harvesting? Do I need a hoe in order to do that? And are you doing it for your clients? Well, yeah, I do do it. Definitely don't use a hoe to do it. <laughs> but what we are what we are doing is tax loss harvesting. So if you've got, like, for instance, shares of a, of a fund or a stock that have dropped, you can sell that and take a, a loss. And if you've held it over a year, you get a long-term capital loss, which you can then use to offset any gains that you have in your portfolio. So maybe you have a stock where you've got a significant gains. You've held that stock for five, six years. You've got a 30% gain on it, but yet you had this stock that had a big drop. You're not too excited about it anymore. What you can do is you can sell that stock and then sell the one with the gain and offset any tax liability. So when the markets drop, sometimes if you have some positions you're not a big fan of to start with, you can actually take a look at selling off some of those and maybe offsetting that with other gains in the portfolio. Or you could have had gains that you've you know, earlier in the year, you may have recognized, and now you can kind of offset. So we do that too. Later in the year, we'll look if we've got gains that we need to try to offset, then we'll go ahead and sell some positions that we're not great fans of anymore that we may be at a loss. Interesting. So the tax loss harvesting, certainly we talk about all these different strategies. That's definitely an interesting one to talk about with your advisor. What about index funds? Now, people probably know what those are. People have always kind of said, right, Scott, at least the way I've heard it is, you know, just if you're preparing for retirement and invest in some index funds and you should be fine. Did they help people avoid problems in the downturn? Well, so there's a double-edged sword with index funds. And index funds are, are basically funds that are mirrors of different indexes out there. And there are thousands of indexes. You can get a, you know, there's the common ones, the S&P 500 index, the Dow you know, there's international indexes, there's bond indexes, there's specific sectors, like you can have, uh, you know, the oil or energy indexes. So you can buy those. They're lower cost because there's nobody managing those funds. There's not a guy saying, oh boy, I think this stock's good. I'm going to buy this or I'm going to sell this. So certainly when you're mirroring the indexes and the markets start dropping, 
depending on which indexes you're in, the more aggressive indexes like S&P 500, you're 100% stocks. The S&P goes down 30%, you go down 30% too. So, you know, there's definitely pain to be felt depending on which indexes you have. But I also kind of like to have a combination of also having some active management in there too. Because at some point in time, you know, let's say Apple drops 30% and you're a big fan of Apple, you'd be like, boy, you know, that it's a good time to buy Apple right now because I believe it's going to, you know, do well over the long term. With an index funds, there's nobody managing the shop there. You're just following those indexes. But if you have somebody trying to take advantage of opportunities, sometimes that can provide some value to the portfolio. So having a combination of a little bit of the indexes with a little bit of active management usually serves best for people. All right. One more. I want to throw your direction here, Scott, because we've certainly had a lot of these buzzwords pop up that maybe we hadn't heard before the pandemic. This one, however, probably has been heard of before, but it's maybe even more prevalent now. And that's rebalancing. Can you give us a refresher on what that is, how often it should be done? And is it something you should be doing right now? Yeah. You know what? It is certainly. And, you know, I don't know if anybody out there listening to podcasts that has watched any of my webinars I've done. But one of the things I say, the way you can combat this virus is by rebalancing. Because basically what happens, if you had a portfolio where you had 60% stocks in it and the stock market went down, well, then your portfolio composition might very well be 50% or 45% stocks now because the stock value dropped. So you rebalance and you put the portfolio back to that 60% allocation in stocks. In other words, you buy low. And then when the markets do come up, you're able to take advantage of it, of the growth a lot more than if you'd stick with just having that 45%. So rebalancing is something you should do in times like this with a lot of volatility when the markets are, are down. We usually rebalance our clients' portfolios quarterly anyway because we want to get you know back to that level if, uh, of where they're they're comfortable with their risk because you know the opposite's true is if the markets keep going up and up and up all of a sudden your 60% ends up being 70% of your total portfolio or 75 then when when a, a crash does or a correction happens in the market you're going to be a lot more volatile than we originally anticipated or set out that portfolio to be well, thank you, Scott, for walking us through some of these different financial terms that we should know as we go through the pandemic. And if you have any questions about what we've talked about so far today, you can certainly reach out to Scott and talk to him about some of these different terminologies and uh, buzzwords, get some better definitions on those things, and get some help as you prepare for your financial and retirement future. You can call 888-742-0111 to get in touch. That's 888-742-0111. Or go to talktoscott.com. That's talktoscott.com, and you can schedule a time to have a phone conversation with Scott and go over your financial situation and your plan a little bit more in detail and kind of talk about what it would look like to get a custom plan in place and see if you would be a good fit to work together. Go to talktoscott.com in order to set that up today. And we'll put the links and information in the description of today's show on those two items. Now, don't tune away. We've got more coming up. We're going to answer one of your questions coming up on the program. We're going to get to know Scott a little bit better and the movie review all on the way here on the Retirement Toolbox. It's getting to know you time. 
Well, it's time to get to know Scott a little bit better on today's program. And Scott, this is one of my favorite parts of the show, just getting to know your personality a little bit more. And the question I've got for you this week is about things that you are superstitious about. Have you ever had a good luck charm or a lucky number or a superstition that you uh, heavily believed in? You know, Walter, I've never been a superstitious guy. I'm not like where I, I need to leave at a certain time or do a certain ritual before a game or, or anything like that. Lucky charms, not really that much either, but I do have a lucky number. Okay. And it kind of, whether it's lucky or not, I don't know, but it's the <laughs> number 57. 57. Okay. That's yeah, I know. One. It's not like five or six or anything like that. 57 because... When I was a kid and I was in Boy Scouts, my dad and I would make Pinewood Derby cars. And every year that I did it, I was, you know, either had won the region or I I had gotten into more advanced levels, finals and stuff like that. I always did really good. I got a bunch of Pinewood Derby trophies. And is Pinewood you know, Derby sure. where they do the, is that the little tiny ones that you run down the track or is this one you actually ride in yourself? No, no, those are soapbox. Soapbox, okay. The ride-in-yourself ones. This is a little block of balsa wood. You cut it yeah, up, you okay. put wheels, graphite, you paint it up. I just watched a video and on that of how to how to make a fast uh, pine wood or pine box? What is it? Pine wood. Pine wood derby car. It was this NASA scientist said he could make one in 45 minutes, probably faster than than you know people who were in the competitions all the time. And right. uh, and it was a fascinating video. He used some like you know just some some cool math and science to like build this car in forty five minutes, and then he took it to a local meetup and race, and just blew everybody away with it. <laughs> you know, I just realized I said something. I said it was a block of balsa wood. Obviously, it's a block of pine wood. But, right. Okay. Pine. Right. I'm clarify. But or it's uh, balsa wood, and you've been breaking the rules. We're gonna have to call for a, a, a contested race next time. but actually you want some weight in your car because you want that to go down but you know the weight is what carries that car down so you can put weights in it and stuff and my lucky number was 57 because that was the number i was all the years that i did that and then i'm sure it was simply my dad's great engineering prowess that you know created those cars for me uh, as we worked together build it but it, it is funny my daughter was in girl scouts and we made a Pinewood Derby car for her, and uh, she came home with a trophy too. So nice. uh, must run in the family, I guess. There you go. She was not fifty-seven though, so. Well, she's got to have her own lucky number. That's her lucky number is not your lucky number. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's pretty cool. I'm there with you. I, I'd say my only superstitions were, uh, you know, I'm a New Jersey Devils hockey fan. And when I was younger, every time they were on TV, because, you know, they would only come on TV maybe once or twice a year because I didn't live in the in New Jersey at the time. Mm-hmm. So we would put, whenever they would come on TV, though, I'd pull out all of my paraphernalia, gear, everything, and we would build like a shrine around the television. I'd put like pictures and, and paintings and the, hang the jersey. And it was just this whole shrine to the New Jersey Devils that would be around the TV. And that was that always was to bring them good luck. So that was was that last year? You still do this now? <laughs> now, since I can see all the games, it's a little bit less special and a little bit more of a hassle to bring all that stuff out. But okay. I have a feeling if they made it to the Stanley Cup Finals, I'll probably bring that tradition back for the playoffs, maybe. But As you should. Last few years, we haven't done too hot on the playoffs front, so <laughs> I haven't needed to get that excited about it. But anyway, that's probably mine. And then the oddest thing I would say... 
There was a guy in my dorm, in like the suite of our dorm in college, who had this weird obsession and love of the number 513, 513, 513. And he would celebrate May 13th as if it was his birthday. And he never, we, all four years of college, we never knew why. He never revealed why the number was so important or interesting. But he said, just watch, 513 will pop up everywhere in your life for as long as you live. And he's like, it's, there's something special about the number. And darn it, if he wasn't right, through college and even to this day, everywhere I see 513, I go, oh man, there it is again. There it is again. And if something pops up as 512, you're like, ah, oh, could have been something, could have been something, but just just missed it. So <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of a mystical number from the college days, and it still somehow holds water even to now. We remember it. So I don't know. There you go. Now I'm passing it on to everyone else here on the podcast. 513, watch. You're going to see it pop up today, and you're going to go, man, Walt was right, 513, sure enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm gonna keep a lookout now. You, you let me know on the uh, next month if we uh, if, if you have that pop up. Uh, okay, very cool. Well, that's getting to know Scott Searles a little bit better on today's show, and now it's time to answer one of your questions. It's time for the mailbag. We want to hear from you. And so, Scott, our mailbag question today comes to us from Beverly. And here's what Beverly wants to know. Beverly says, I counted up the mutual funds in my IRA, and it appears that I have 33 different funds. Is that adequate diversification? Well, Beverly, that, that's actually a super good question. And I've been doing this 27 or so years, and I'm not sure if I've seen anybody with 33 different funds. It might be a little bit too much. And, and the, I bet if you looked at a lot of these mutual funds, you know, are, they're going to overlap. They're going to be holding a lot of the same things. And I bet you if you worked with an advisor that kind of did a, an analysis of your portfolio and you looked at how much overlap is in there, a lot of them are probably holding the same things. And you could simply have the same level of diversification without having so many different funds. Because the key to being suc a successful portfolio is not diversification is a key part of it, certainly, but it's the structure of the portfolio, how volatile it is. Are you taking the proper amount of risk? Are you getting as much reward for the amount of risk that you're taking in the portfolio? Is there a lot of value added? There's all sorts of nerdy numbers we look at, and you can do that with a lot less funds than 33 funds. So, you know, I'm not saying that that's necessarily horrible that you've got 33 funds, but I think you could probably develop a better portfolio and have less than 33 funds in there. Yeah, it's kind of a fallacy, right? That the quantity of investments leads to diversification when really there's a big component of quality in there, too. Well, you know what, you know, Walter, I must say, unless Beverly's lucky number is 33, <laughs> there you go. We could probably look at possibly having a, a, a little bit less funds in that portfolio. I love it. I love it. Great question, Beverly. Thanks for asking that one. It's a common question. Uh, so don't feel like you're on an island there with those concerns and those questions. Uh, if you do have a question for Scott Searles and you want to talk a little bit more about your specific situation, give a call 888 742 0111. That's 888-742-0111. Or you can find Scott online by going to talktoscott.com and schedule a time to meet there on the site. That's talktoscott.com. And you can check the description or show notes of whatever app you're using 
to listen to today's show and uh, find the links in appropriate locations there. All right, Scott, time for our new and uh, exciting segment here on the Retirement Toolbox. Time to review some shows and movies. Just sitting at home with nothing to do. It's time for the shelter-in-place movie TV review. All right, so uh, certainly you've had a chance a couple of weeks to review a movie or a show or two over the last couple of weeks since our last recording. Scott, what you got? Well, you know what? We watched a great movie, Richard Jewell. Oh, I want to see that. I want to see it. Was it good? It was really good. I mean, the the guy that plays Richard Jewell was a great actor. I I think the film was, was directed by Clint Eastwood. Yep. But those who aren't familiar with Richard Jewell, he was the security guard that had discovered the bomb at the Atlanta Olympics that it had gone off, did kill several people, I believe, and injured, you know, hundreds more. But then he was blamed for actually, you know, planning the bomb. And uh, not to, you know, I'm not going to spoil the movie because, well, the fact is it's common knowledge. Everybody probably knows he did not do it. Okay. But it's a really well done movie. It was really good. The actors were really good in there. And I would recommend that. It was really good. Very cool. That's on my list. I definitely want to see it. And with your recommendation now, I will, uh, I'll pull the trigger and go watch that one. I'm going to throw out kind of a funny one. It's a Netflix show. It's Outer Banks. I don't know if you've seen that one. Okay. I've seen it. It pops right up on my preview. (laughs) We haven't watched it yet. So, you know, I'm from North Carolina and have lived on the coast of North Carolina through high school, and my parents still live there. Now, the the show was actually filmed in, uh, I think, outside of Charleston, so it's not even actually filmed in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. It's also kind of funny because at one point in the show, they take a ferry to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which mm-hmm. that's impossible to do because it's three hours away by land. But it's kind of funny <laughs> that they just were like, yeah, for TV purposes, we'll just smush these two locations together but it is a really entertaining show it's a little goofy at times a little little melodramatic but after the season is done now my wife and I were kind of like I kind of miss watching that show like it actually was a fun show to watch and get wrapped up in so as long as you don't take it too seriously it actually was a really fun exciting show and, the, and you start to like the characters after not really liking them at first so okay. basically it's about this kid who uh, his dad is missing and he ends up finding out that his dad was looking for gold, was looking for uh, you know treasure, buried treasure. And so he kind of connects the dots that his dad must have been looking for the treasure, and that's why he went missing. And so then it just kind of, you know, now he's on the hunt for the gold. And then the story just becomes a – but he's also now, you know, an orphan. And they're trying to get him essentially to, you know, come live in foster care or at, at a, a group home. When he's like, no, but my dad's missing. He's not dead. And so they're trying to figure all, he's trying to figure all this out. And then the scenery, of course, is beautiful because they're on the coast. And sure. so it's just a fun show to watch from a scenery perspective. And, you know, they're young kids all with all young kid problems, you know, while also trying to find gold. <laughs> so it's just kind of interesting to, to follow it all. And there's like, you know, a class war going on between the locals and those who, you know, own all the expensive boats and the houses and, you know, it's just kind of a fun little, uh, fun little snarl of a show for a season, and uh, snarl of a show, snarl of a show. Yes, exactly. Okay. So I recommend it. It was fun. It was it was light, but also kind of exhilarating at times. A pretty okay. show. I, I recommend it. It was it was a fun ride, if you will. 
So, so kind of like Goonies, but at the Outer Banks. It's a more adult Goonies <laughs> and on the Outer okay. Banks. Yes. Yeah. Not quite as PG maybe as the Goonies, but, uh, okay. but yeah, I mean, it's typical Netflix shows are these days. There's, there's not a lot that's PG out there. No. When you get these legit shows now that don't have to answer to the FCC and those kinds of things. But, yeah, you know, but it was good. I would suggest that one. So maybe go see the Richard Jewell one first. That's probably one that you'll have a better takeaway and impact on your life maybe than the Outer Banks show. But it was it was fun. It was a good show. So check it out. All right. I will. Well, there you go. Those are our movie and TV show reviews. We'll have more for you next time. Plus lots of great financial information and education on the next show as well. Scott had a lot of fun today. Thank you so much for the help. And we'll talk to you on the next episode. You got it, Walter. Go box. Talk to you soon. That's Scott Searles. I'm Walter Storholt. We'll talk to you next time right back here on the Retirement Toolbox. Investment advisory services provided by Skybox Asset Management, LLC.